This episode of She's a Punk is brought to you by Pink Cherry. Pink Cherry is an online retailer that covers all of your adult needs. Go to PinkCherry.com and use the offer code PUNK40. That's P-U-N-K-40 to get 40% off your purchase. And then you got to stick around to the end to find out not only why I like Pink Cherry so much, but what happened to me this week in regards to anal beats. (laughs) Sounds like I'm joking. I'm not. Stay tuned. She is defiant. She is a rule breaker. She is a revolutionary because she is who she is. She's a punk. Jenny Wu is a musician who plays acoustic oi. Now, she grew up in Edmonton in the late 90s and early 2000s, and Jenny was a biracial woman playing in punk and oi bands since she was in her teens. As a Chinese-Canadian, she never really felt like she fit in at home, and as a woman, she had to really carve a space out for herself in the punk scene. Jenny and I spoke about what it means to be a working-class musician, her identity, and what it means to be a skinhead to her. Jenny is so kind, and she is insightful, and this episode will really, really make you think about how we perceive others and our own self-identity. I'm your host, Siobhan Woodrow, and this... I'm very happy to say, is Jenny Wu. So my name is Jenny Wu, and I'm singing in a female um, acoustic oi project for the last 13 years. And I've also got a few other bands, mostly playing punk and oi. That's great. So how did you get into punk? Well, I think... um, I was about 13 at the time, and uh, like most punk rockers, I felt like I didn't really fit in with most of the kids in my class, and I didn't relate to mainstream music, so I was always searching for something that I could um, get into, but unfortunately at that time there wasn't internet and there wasn't, um, you know, a local record shop that I could easily access. I was living in a smaller Canadian city. So one day Rancid came on the radio. It was the 90s. And yeah, well, I heard Ruby Soho on the radio. Um, And after that, I completely fell in love with it. And because Rancid references so many other bands in their songs, I was able to pick up The Clash, Billy Bragg, and basically go through the entire history of punk rock till this day. How old were you then? I was 13. 13, yeah. That's 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 sort of the sweet spot. That seems to be the common age where people start to decide they want to rebel or feel like they don't really fit in is usually around 13, I find. Yeah, well, that's the coming of age for searching for identity, right? right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you grew up in Edmonton. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> What was the scene like there? Well, Edmonton is a city of about one million people, but it's mostly known for having the world's, or it used to be the world's biggest shopping center, which kind of tells you a little bit about the town. Um, there wasn't a massive local punk scene, but the punk scene that there there is is very close-knit. So um, it was just a little bit difficult for me to get into it when I was younger because... 
again at the time there wasn't internet and a lot of the gigs were taking place in like local community centers and also um, at veterans halls so you kind of had to know people to know people to get in and fortunately when I got into high school I met other punk rockers who just showed me the light and since then I started a lot of my own bands and uh, did a lot of fanzines and the scene became my entire life. So then let's talk about the scene. How did you kind of stumble your way into the OI scene? Did you feel like you made like a pretty strong departure from punk rock or did they feel like one and the same for you? I think that punk and OI are uh, two very different genres, but I do think that OI is a part of punk. So when I started getting to punk, it was mostly street punk. And uh, of course, I had like a half meter mohawk and a lot of studded studded jackets and all of that. And I think that this uh, live for today, no tomorrow ethos really spoke to me um, simply because I was really angry at a lot of things. And as I got older, I no longer needed to wear rebellion so much on the outside as I felt it on the inside. And instead of this live for today, I wanted to get into a subculture that actually taught me to live a long and good life. And what I do love about OI and the skinhead subculture in total is that it's based on values. And for a young woman, um, the values of uh, loyalty and community and also pride in yourself for what you've worked for and these other working class values were really appealing um, simply because it offered an alternative to simply being judged on the value of what it looked like. I mean, talk about there being a small punk scene. I, I understand that, there, but there must have been an even smaller skinhead scene. Oh yeah, for sure. It's uh, very much more esoteric. Um, but yeah, basically I remember I was at a concert uh, probably in like 1999, 2000, and I just saw a guy at the the show, and I said, "Well, why are you dressed like an old man?" <laughs> a punk show, and he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm a skidhead," and I said, "Oh, is that, doesn't that mean you're racist?" And he was like, "No, no, no, no," and he was kind enough to walk me through like everything from the year of 69 onwards, and I immediately understood that it was something for me. So that's, you know, sort of your story of getting into listening to music. But let's think about you playing music. What instrument did you pick up first? Well, my mother's husband, when I was really little, was actually a piano teacher. So I was lucky enough to get a really early education in music from him. And um, my first instrument was the piano. It's beautiful. I guess that's, you know, people always say that playing piano first really sets you up for trying to learn to play anything else. Yeah, it's true because actually um, when you see all the notes in front of you, it's a lot easier to see how like chords and harmonies and scales actually work. Um, in my personal experience, it was a, a great way to get into the architecture of music. So you were already playing music by the time that punk rock had become a part of your life. So were you, did you find yourself writing songs very early on or did that come later? Well, actually, um, as soon as I got into punk rock, I switched to the drums. 
because I was angry as hell and I thought it would be a really great way to express myself. And uh, my mom actually had like a detached garage. It was very like American (laughs) at the time. Um, But uh, the problem with the drums is that it's a lot of work and there's very little glory. So I ended up joining a couple of, um, you know, local like junior high, high school punk bands as the drummer but they're all very like short-lived projects. And then I actually picked up the guitar and it was only when I picked up the guitar that I started writing music. And I think it's because a lot of guitar is based around chords and I had an acoustic, so I was just playing open chords and it's quite a lot easier to write um song structure and melody just when you already have like root chords Mm -hmm. writing songs on the drums is not that easy yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can't imagine so i really can't so jenny jenny you've you said twice already that you were just very angry why were you so angry what were you angry about well i think that there was of course a lot of circumstantial things that a lot of people go through you know like my parents split up when i was a kid Um, I also had like a lot of struggles because I was growing up like biracial at a time that, um, biracial kids weren't common. So, um, I was constantly being asked who I really was and it was difficult because, uh, for my Chinese Canadian side of the family, I wasn't really a part of them. I didn't speak Cantonese very well and always felt like a little bit excluded at the dim sum table for that and then with my mom's side of the family it was very much like alienating based on the fact that I wasn't totally white and I think that it was a sort of struggle for identity and I remember a lot of my teachers always looking at me and saying well you where does woo come from because you don't look totally Asian And a lot of people thought I was actually native Canadian at the time. So a lot of weird things like that. And I also think um, growing up as a girl who wasn't exactly like skinny, I was a bit chubby, (laughs) still am. Um, There's a lot of weight on my shoulders and I didn't really know who to talk to or how to express it. Yeah. So is that sort of, that's certainly the root of you not feeling included in things it started with your family yeah i think that's the origin of a lot of people's identity in life and uh i definitely felt like torn for a lot of my childhood you know it's interesting that you say that um earlier on you you mentioned how much you value community and and what that meant to you and how that really spoke to you about the skinhead identity and lifestyle was a sense of community is that what really brought you there I think so. I think that um, when you've gone through a lot of loneliness, um, it's normal to seek communion in other people. And the skinhead scene was like an immediate network of friends around the world who had something deeply in common with me. So then let's talk about skinhead culture. There's obviously a a ton of misconception surrounding that skinhead identity. Can you kind of walk 
me and, and folk through what it means to be a skinhead for you and why there are so many misunderstandings around that particular subculture? Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, uh, skinhead is a living subculture and it's obviously um, a self-selected identity that has a lot of different interpretations and meanings. So this is just mine. Um, I'm not writing the Wikipedia article on it. It's just... <laughs> Um, this is what it means to me. So uh, for me, skinhead started in the 60s in the UK, and it was actually the first multicultural subculture um, because it brought a lot of Caribbean influences into white culture at the time. And it was firmly rooted in working class identity. So it was uh, for a lot of young people who were listening to first wave ska in council houses or working class neighborhoods of the UK. And a lot of skinhead style was, in fact, mimicking Caribbean immigrants during the 60s to the United Kingdom. And the idea as well was, even with a very little amount of money, you could still take pride in your appearance and look the best you can because everybody has worth Um, And we are defined by what we actually work for as opposed to the privilege and class that we are born with. And I think that really touched me just that um, there's a lot of uh, social elements inside of skinhead uh, which intersect between race and class. And that's something that I've really felt in my life as well, being on the borders in a lot of places. Um, I've unfortunately, like, through... The 80s, uh, the British National Party rose in England and like there was a far right wing contingent that was looking to appeal to young people. And um, at that time in the 80s, punk was really popular in the UK as well. It was just post The Clash's first couple of albums and a lot of people with shaved heads and with, you know, the roots and braces and Ben Sherman's and Fred Perry's, which were the traditional gear of skinheads, got into, as well, the far-right movement. But that was, of course, only a part of the subculture. And I think that um, when you see an image of a young man with a shaved head and an angry face, yeah, a lot of times it immediately strikes fear in people because there's an immediate connection between racism and skinhead. Um, which is ironic because actually skinhead was based in first wave Scott, like, you know, Laurel Aiken songs and Prince Buster songs about skinheads. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting um, evolutions in the subculture. And then through the 90s and the early th- 2000s, um, skinhead spread across the world. I mean, it was picked up in the United States, in Canada, throughout Europe, uh, as people got into Scott or as they got into Oi. And it, it also manifested itself in a lot of different directions. There were uh, the Sharp movement that came out of... Um, the 90s as well, which was skinheads against racial prejudice, and it was trying to change the image and also um, sort of 
solidify uh, skinhead as being actually anti-racist. Um, and then there was a group of people who thought that actually it's not enough to just be against racism uh, because actually capitalism is the root of racism so inspired by Marxist-Leninist beliefs you get rash which is um, red anarcho-communist skinheads and that's completely different faction and now you have all kinds of skinheads in the world uh, whether it's brown power Malay skinheads or a collective of feminist skinheads I mean the list goes on and it's simply because it's such a fascinating internally disjunctive subculture that appeals to so many people and so many people want to make it their own that it becomes whatever people want it to be so that's why I can't really say that I know what skinhead is it's just for me it's really about music and community and being a part of something that connects you through generations. Well, you you may not uh, you know be the person to define it certainly, but you did a one hell of a job just explaining it. So, fret not. I think that was very very clear. And and do you identify as? Well, how how do you identify? Do you identify as just a skinhead? Do you feel like you are a sharp? Do you how, how do you identify? Um, there is a lot of uh, also nuances that are tied into sharp and all of this as the different subsects of the subculture um, went on to do different actions and to um, get different identities for themselves. And actually, for me, I'm against racism not simply because I am a skinhead or in spite of the fact that I'm a skinhead, but just because I'm a normal person, not even a good person, just a normal person. Like that's basically the baseline of just being okay, being against racism. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very difficult to um, claim an identity because for example, I lived quite a few years in Russia and in Russia, like sharp means something completely different than what sharp means here in Paris or what sharp means in Canada. So I try to be really diff- um, to be really picky about labels because, of course, I identify with the sentiment of being against racism. But also there's been a lot of violent crime committed by um, skinheads who identify as sharps and it gets really confusing. So. I prefer to say that I'm a traditional skinhead. I love um, the roots of skinhead and the music, and I'm 100% against fascism and sexism and racism, but I don't need a label for that. I understand the hesitation behind uh, identifying one way or the other, especially because internationally, if it doesn't necessarily translate or different groups around the world do not treat that label with the same care that we perhaps would here. I get that. That being said, it seems fucking exhausting to me (laughs) to have to dance around your own identity, but I suppose it wouldn't feel that way for you because you just did that very easily. Well, no, it's a constant struggle and a battle. And I think that as well, if you try to do something more public, and you're in a particular position of being, let's say, a female who's a visible minority, you get locked into a position where people feel like you have to claim an identity 
or say something. No matter what, they'll never bring us down. We will always be hidden proud. No matter what, we'll always stand our ground. We will always be hidden proud. I had a really interesting experience with uh, one of the oi bands that I played with a couple of years ago. And after the show, they offered me a ride in their van back to the hotel. And on the way back to the hotel, they sort of made an intervention with me and they said, you know, we're really upset and we didn't want to play with you because you didn't explicitly claim that you're Antifa and you didn't explicitly claim that you're anti-racist and being who you are, we think that you should do more to fight sexism and racism. And this is coming from like a group of like white guys Uh, okay and i was like whoa 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 like let's remember what those words actually mean and who they're for and who they're for and what it means to stand for something like every time i get on the stage it is a completely different reality than you and sometimes it's just feeling racism and sexism and continuing on is taking more of a stand than wearing a t-shirt saying that you belong to a certain group So I've had really interesting experiences like that, but it is confusing, it is exhausting, and it's good for me because it always keeps me questioning who I really am and who I want to be. What's the substance behind the style? Honestly, like, number one, I'm so sorry that you were ever put in a position like that because I I really recognize in you just simply being who you are and continuing on doing the music and making the art that you do. You know, that is a form of protest. Just getting up and playing is a form of protest. So you shouldn't be hassled into... (laughs) You are standing up to everybody by just being yourself. Um, Especially when you are, uh, you know, like a triple minority in some situations. So I I can't imagine the type of pressure that you must feel. That's one hell of an undertaking in itself. That being said, there are going to be situations where you do come into contact with just, I mean, certainly racist skinheads, yes, but just racists in general um, when you're in subcultures like this. Have you had those types of experiences? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Around 2014, uh, I don't really love to talk about it that much because it's not really worth talking about, but uh, there was like a kind of like internet sensation band called Trollfront. And basically their entire idea was to attack individuals like anonymously uh, because they believe that skinhead is supposed to be about really tough, cool, macho stuff. So um, they would sort of combat softness in the oi scene by anonymously writing songs and making posts about people. So they wrote this song called um, Jenny Wu Has Down Syndrome, which is basically that I'm a mongoloid because I have Asian roots. So, um, yeah, the song is really super popular. And then after there were a lot of people who um, made and sold and purchased, you know, these T-shirts that have my face and they say like mongoloid, but like the oi is inside of it. So it's cool, you know, and uh, besides of explicit racist things. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, come on, it's just a joke. But 
for example, like if if my family Googles me, that's one of the things that comes up. And it's kind of hard to explain that to people you love. That's so tough. And I think it's so awful that you've been held to some sort of a standard where you need to speak for every biracial woman. Like it's your responsibility to take a stand, but these people are not held to any standard at all. And they can make horribly, horribly insensitive jokes is, is mind blowing to me. Yeah. But that's one thing that um, nobody inside the skinhead scene understands and nobody outside of it understands. There's like a really strange dynamic. And I think that there's a lot of people in this world who believe that oi is fundamentally defined by a machismo attitude towards the world, which implies that you have to be tough, you have to be violent, and there should be no quote-unquote crybabies. Um, But I don't know how I got wrapped into this whole thing because strength and courage manifests itself in a lot of different ways, as does violence. And basically my entire project, yes, it has been an adaptation of oi music, but evolution implies adaptation. And there have been a lot of new generation oi bands who have written a lot of music that doesn't sound exactly like UK 82 or whatever. So I do definitely think that um, there are a lot of factors that led to the uh, sexist and racist and attacks that I've experienced. But a lot of people who've done acoustic oi, even as solo projects, haven't experienced that to the extent that I have just because of my identity, right? Mm-hmm. And I've always known oi to be, or the skinhead movement and, and oi music certainly, um, to be a very macho space to occupy. Very, very macho. Um, it's also very insular, you know? Um, it's very closed off from a lot of the world. And I think that that's sometimes. Not always, but sometimes that can be a what ends up being a sort of horrendous combination of things because there's not enough people looking into it to be able to um, hold anybody accountable for the things that they do and the things that they say. So it just continues to be a very male-dominated, macho space. Absolutely, and there's a very high turnover rate. So (laughs) unfortunately, a lot of creative, interesting people with um, a will to change things don't often stick around simply because it's a really tough space to be in. But to be fair, um, I really have to say in my life, I've created some of the strongest female friendships because of the skinhead scene. And I think it's because it does attract people who are either creative, intellectual, and um, outsiders, or it attracts people who are extremely damaged. (laughs) And uh, in the former group, you know, there's a lot of really cool, interesting women who also feel the struggle. And, And I think that through solidarity in a lot of those ways, I've created like relationships and bonds that surpass the strength of most of my female friendships outside of the scene. 
That's a really beautiful sentiment to think about, especially because, I mean, let's be serious, there are, I have to assume, far few of you. Like, there just can't be too, too many. And when you're walking into a show, you're walking into an away show, the, it must be disproportionately male, yes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, I guess that sort of automatically creates a bond between the few women that must be in the room, right? Yes, I think so. And of course, there's some people with like internalized misogyny who mm. immediately turn against each other because they feel territorial or something. But in the majority of my experience, um, women have been extremely inclusive and welcoming inside the skinhead scene. And it's also interesting because in a lot of calendars and uh, cartoon artwork that one might find on the internet, uh, skinhead women are like hypersexualized, but yes, I think that it's a really liberating way to dress because it's actually a, an adaptation of a male variant of the clothing. So, it, unlike like a lot of uh, female gear in mainstream like club wear and stuff like that, it's it's pretty easy to like wear it at any body size or body type and. I found that it was a lot easier for a lot of women to get into it because with a shaved head and all of this stuff, there were completely different expectations of what beautiful meant and actually a different valuation of what beautiful is in relation to all of the other values of skinhead. So it was a, it, it has been a very interesting journey and of, of course it's been hard, but it's made me a stronger person, and I also have to say that I've taken some real fruits out of it. You know, that's a really interesting thing to say um, because, you know, uh, let, let, let's be serious. It's a bit of a uniform, and that's fine because it, it's a look. It's a strong aesthetic, and you find that to be quite liberating, which um, feels a little counterintuitive. But I completely yeah. understand what you're saying, where you don't have to think as much about your appearance. It's kind of like built into the subculture, and you know what you're going to look like every day, therefore kind of liberating yourself from having to focus on it so much. Exactly. It's like the, uh, the philosophy behind a school uniform as well. <laughs> you know, um, in a way you can't necessarily uh, self-identify because you're locked into like these particular items of clothing that are defined as skinhead. But you self-identify in the greater crowd, right? So uh, it's also a bit provocative, I think, for people to look at the skinhead aesthetic. And it's also, at the same time, classic. I mean, again, the clothes were based on working-class outfits from the 60s and 70s, and also, you know, some oi variants in the 80s, but they're basically clean, simple clothes. And so once you have that basis, you can feel free to like expand your identity outwards in other ways. And I suppose that kind of bleeds into the idea of, of class as well, because everybody sort of looks the same, you know, while Fred Perry and Ben, and ben Sherman are certainly expensive clothes now, essentially you all look the same, so you can't really identify class in that way either. Yes, well, I I actually totally agree with you pointing out the irony in all of this, which is that the working class clothes of Britain back in the day have actually become quite posh labels now. So 
it actually costs a lot of money to go out and get completely decked out in Levi's and Ben Sherman's and Doc Martens. Yeah, it but really does. <laughs> the cool thing about it is that um, a lot of people have, especially in developing countries, uh, which I've been lucky enough to play in and tour in, have overcome that obstacle by adapting skinhead aesthetic into their own ways. And actually, um, this is not an advertisement, but I myself uh, helped to design and create a line of female skinhead shirts, which were button downs. And the idea behind that was to use brighter colors um, to accentuate femininity with a better cut of shirts so that they were actually carved out for female bodies uh, as opposed to, you know, just basically being men's shirts. And then the last thing is that uh, the shirts were entirely made by women being paid fair wages. Uh, so were shirts being made for women by women and they were all under 35 bucks. Wow. Now I, I, I don't want to, you know, feel like you're being tricked into like hawking your wear sir because that's not what i mean but who who was that done with who was that collaboration with yeah so it was in collaboration with a, a group of people called jege garment um based in malaysia and the garments were made in indonesia but it was a really cool project to do because it was working with a group of people who loved the subculture but knew that based on like global class disparity nobody in southeast asia would ever be able to buy just regular Ben Sherman shirts. So the idea was, hey, we have major textile factories here. Let's make them here and make it our own. And I think that was really cool. And it, it was cool that they contacted me because it was like all of these global connections that came out of it. And you're quite global. I mean, let's be serious. You travel i feel like constantly you're always in a different place and and currently you live in paris despite the fact that you're just a girl from edmonton and and when did you start traveling like this um well um i think that the prairies in canada can do two things for you they can make you agoraphobic or claustrophobic mm -hmm. and I grew up with a feeling like I just needed to get out of there. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Edmonton and I love Alberta, but I knew from a young age that it wasn't the place that I was going to die in. And so I started to think of creative ways that I could escape. And uh, when I was 17, I moved to Montreal and um, sort of tried to find a way to move myself eastward. <laughs> um, so... I ended up uh, trying to get like odd jobs uh, to do overseas. So I worked as an English proofreader for a legal company in the Ukraine for a while. And then from there, I got a job uh, working on this Holocaust education project in Germany. And then with that international experience, I actually got a job that keeps me on the road all the time. So people think that, yeah, I'm just moving around because of like, uh, you know, oi music. Well, uh, shocking news, oi music doesn't really pay the bills. So <laughs> I work full time and uh, it's because I'm able to combine my work travel with playing that I'm able to be so mobile, I guess. Can I ask what you do for a living? Yeah, I work for the Canadian government here. 
So I no work way. In the yeah, you work. Well, you work in the embassy. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's a very interesting job, and it's pretty cool because it keeps me intellectually stimulated at the same time, and also connected to communities in different ways. Yeah, I mean, really, if you looked at your Instagram, um, which is how I did some of the research for preparing for this interview, I mean, it was just like, I don't know if this chick has a postal code. Like, it just didn't, it didn't really feel that way. It feels like you're all over the place. So is it more like you travel for work and then you book shows around that, or is it a combination of both? Um, it, it's actually a combination of both. So um, back when I was working in Russia, um, I had a lot of work travel through the stands. I mean, it wouldn't be a normal idea for me to say like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go on vacation in Kyrgyzstan. So I, I had all of this, uh, time to work in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and stuff like that. And because I had to be there for work, my immediate inclination was to try to find the punk scene because I was going to be there for a while. So I started working my way back through the Russian punk network um, mostly through diaspora communities in um, Central Asia to get to the punk scenes, which were, uh, for the most part, especially in Uzbekistan, illegal and underground. And it's only because I was there for a while because of my work that I was able to play concerts there because you sort of build up people's trust and then you get to, you know, experience the delight of an Uzbeki basement show. So that that I have sort of combined work and travel. Also, when I was, um, you know, working in Kenya, I was able to book like gigs in Rwanda and Kenya because of, you know, friends and mates that I made while I was living there because of work. Right. Um, but those are probably places that it, are not like evidently hot spots for punk scenes. And so working there was an advantage. Um, but there are a lot of places that I just wanted to go and travel to and playing a punk gig seemed like a great motivating factor to go. So I made a huge list of all the places I wanted to see in my life. And there were like 112 countries and I've basically just been checking them off. Hey, you know, it's not a bad way to live. It's not a bad way, but it's also really, um, a lot more challenging than it, you know, social media probably makes it out to seem, you know, that's, that's the problem with Instagram. We highlight ourselves, but nobody sees the moments of, you know, solitude or the moments of, you know, self-reflection, like, whoa, is the nomadic life actually the life for me? Like it, not having roots makes you free, but it also doesn't help you grow in a lot of directions. Do you experience loneliness often? chronically actually to be very sincerely honest um it's not something comfortable to talk about because we're all supposed to be perfect i guess but um the the greatest loneliness is feeling alone in a crowd and i think that simply because um i have been on the one hand really ostracized in the skinhead community and on the other hand you know there's a lot of people who see the YouTube videos and then they sort of assume that you are this person when you go touring and you play gigs. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to ask people to, to just know you as a human being. And, uh, 
and also, you know, language barriers and the challenge of living and working in other cultures compounds it. But sometimes like you just know that there's no friendships that will run as deep as the friendships you made as a child and not having those around as much or not having family around definitely contributing factors to loneliness. I can only imagine when a lot of your social outlet or network is you being surrounded by people who, let's be serious, probably largely admire you um, or are fans of you. You know, it's not a secret. You are very much well loved within the community. I mean, listen, you're saying that you've been ostracized in the community and, and, and I understand that as well with any sort of with a lot of exposure people will hate you and I and I get that but a lot of people really dig you and I would I think I would argue that most people really dig you and I understand why that could also be a very alienating experience albeit from a different source but alienating nonetheless uh absolutely um well thank you that's a very charitable statement I'm not sure if it's totally true but I I do really appreciate it I I recently had an experience where I met Becky Bondage, who was a huge, yeah, a huge influential figure in my life growing up. I still have, like, you know, the cover of her Womp uh, magazine interview. I had that, like, photo in my locker for, like, six years, and I still have it pegged to my wall. And I I met her at, like, an Italian restaurant randomly, and I was like, oh my god, it's Becky Bondage. And my tongue... um, just sort of froze and then I went up to her and completely fangirled the shit out of her and I could just tell that my undying adoration was making her completely uncomfortable but I didn't know how to stop it and um, my friend who was with me who actually knew nothing about Vice Squad and doesn't even like punk music was just like oh hey uh, like your dog and was able to have a much more human conversation with him whereas I was like completely passing out from like euphoria so it's really hard because sometimes when you know somebody in a specific way and they mean something to you it's really hard to connect with them in other ways and I think that that can make people feel lonely Mm -hmm. yeah and okay, so then let's think about the other side of that. It's true. I think, you know, I, like I said before, I think people really, really care about you. I think really, people really admire you and people really admire your work. However, with that comes the other side of that coin where people also like to trash you. Uh, yeah. You know, we live in a world of the internet, it's 2019, uh, trolls are everywhere. How do you deal with the backlash that you seem to get? You seem to get. Um, actually, a lot of it is just like willful ignorance. (laughs) So I've never really had masochistic tendencies. And I have no need to read the comments under my YouTube videos. I mean, you can get constructive criticism from peers, from colleagues, from fellow musicians, but uh, most constructive internet or constructive criticism doesn't come from like internet comments. So I basically just don't read any of it and I I don't really monitor like a lot of my my you know when people share your posts and what people are saying on other people's pages I I just think that that's way better for your mental health mm-hmm. and 
of course I, I do get like, you know, hate messages on the daily, like through Instagram and Facebook. Um, they surprisingly seem to be overwhelmingly old, grumpy white men who are drunk. And yeah, that does not surprise me. Decide to send you like midnight death threats that also seem like love letters in a way. So I don't really take that stuff personally. Um, I mean, it comes with the territory. I think that I did have like um, hard times when people did like attack my racial identity and they did attack like, you know, my body image and stuff. Um, but I think that those were just because they were like personal insecurities of mine and actually confronting my, my insecurities because of that made me a stronger person. Um, so it hasn't really always been like a negative thing. I think at the end of the day, the best remedy for dealing with haters is the hard and the high road, which is self-love and chilling out. Chilling out. That's very good advice. That's, I really like that a lot. And, uh, you know, you've built up sort of this international network of folk who really, really do enjoy the music that you make. And did you know that that was what was going to happen to you? Did this building up around you of people who enjoy your music happen sort of slowly? Or, I I don't know, it's really hard to say. Did you know that you were going to be a known person? Oh, no, no way. I mean, like, uh, I remember when I first started recording my demos, it was like in 2006. And actually, I I started to play like acoustic oi music simply because I had written a lot of songs on my acoustic guitar and I wanted to translate them into full band songs. But unfortunately, um, the oi scene, as you know, in Edmonton was very small at the time. I tried to audition for a couple of the local bands. I remember this guy saying to me, you know, like, um, sorry, but we want to be like a serious band. So it doesn't make sense to have a chick on the stage Mm. (laughs) and all of this stuff, which made me really angry. And so I just thought better to play the songs alone than not at all. Did a lot of like open mic nights at like weird karaoke bars. Um, And back in the day, it was just like literally me (laughs) and like a crowd of hecklers. And I decided to record the demo because I actually just wanted to record like that moment in time. And it wasn't like to become famous or something. I just put the demo like on MySpace because, hey, it was the early 2000s, you know? (laughs) That wasn't doing it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was a thing to do, you know? And, uh, I was so completely overwhelmingly shocked uh, because my friends gave me positive feedback and they said, you should, um, you know, make some like hard copy demos and like give them to people. So I like contacted the local staples so that they could burn me 250 copies of my four track demo. And, you know, I just did this really cool um, self cartoon sort of cover for it and then I brought like a knapsack of this 200 demos on my Euro trip and I just gave them to like every random person I don't even know um, where most of them went but I did recently find a copy of the demo on eBay being sold for like 100 bucks US which is crazy yeah and then I I don't know what I even expected I, I think I just kind of 
gave the demos out because it was sort of like I wanted to sort of give people um, a small souvenir. Like it's like as if you have like a ton of keychains from Canada and you're doing this Euro trip and you're like, hey, have a coaster. It was like that kind of mentality. I I, I sincerely, honestly didn't intend to uh, to be famous or something or to like, you know, put out an actual album. And then uh, this German record label called me and they said, hey, we got your demo. And I was like, really? And they said, yeah, it's actually not so bad. So if you pay for all of your own stuff, we'll release your album. And that at the time seemed like a really cool idea. Like, hey, I'll just pay for all my own recording and you'll own the music. Great. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was like it was a foot in the door. And uh, here we are like 13 years later. So <laughs> it was a weird, long evolution. And also a lot of it was at the time when social networks online started lighting up. Like this was even before Facebook, right? So yeah. it was like um, kind of a lucky spot to be in when it came to being a musician because now there's a really high oversaturation of punk bands. Everybody's got like a SoundCloud and a Bandcamp and everybody's like sending you a million links and everyone's bored and doesn't have the time or the attention span now thanks to instagram stories so it's really a lot harder for bands to make it through now and i appreciate the struggle but at the time that i was doing it it was like you just send your myspace link out to your six other contacts and that was like they were for sure gonna listen to it because there's nothing much else to do and there wasn't even that much on youtube at the time so it was it was a lucky period and it was also because I was doing something a bit like different than what other people were doing, which was controversial and interesting. And I think that it spoke to a lot of people who are like looking for something different and just sort of like, there were a lot of catalysts that helped me a few key people that I met along the way that really helped me and a lot of collaborations, which brought me forward. Um, and of course, I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into the music and the promotion and the product. But at the end of the day, like, um, I think that it was a very long road and it was not by all means architected by myself at the beginning. So w- what's next for you right now? I know that's not often the most pleasant question to answer, <laughs> but are you working on something right now? Oh, I have like a million, million different things. I've got blueprints on my desk as we speak. But one project that I wanted to speak about today, which I think is really relevant for your show, is that um, a part of like the skinhead scene, as I mentioned for me, um, was the value of female friendship. And... It was really frustrating for me to go to so many festivals and play and to be like the only female musician on the entire lineup of four days with 50 bands or something. So I thought it would be really cool if there was like a completely female written, produced and recorded project um, out there which would serve as like a, a creative catalyst amongst female musicians and also a way to bring community together. So I decided to create this project called Athena, the goddess of war. And the idea is that it's not precisely a band, but it's an ongoing project that will have new members and hopefully light other fires in the future. But right now, um, 
I've worked with four other women musicians in the skinhead scene to write and record three songs, which will be released on a female headed like oil label and also was designed by a female tattoo artist in our scene and is going to actually be filmed by a female videographer in the scene in October. So we're putting all of this out as kind of like a battle cry. Um, and it's been a really fun journey to work with these women. And I do hope that they go on to do other projects and talk about Athena. And I go on to do other projects and talk about Athena and that Athena spreads and grows. And like, since I've been working on it, I've made connections with a lot of other women in um, Argentina and Indonesia who want to be a part of it. So I'm hoping that they're going to do their own Athena project in their own countries and that it's sort of going to grow outward. That is incredible. That sounds amazing. Like, that functions more like a collective then. Yeah, it's a collective, exactly. So um, I'm kind of sort of trying to smash down a lot of walls in this subculture, not just on the basis of gender, but also on the basis of geography. Um, with technology, we can record tracks in like many different studios and mix them. And I forgot to mention that even the sound engineer is a female skinhead woman, so that's cool. But it's also sort of breaking down this idea that um, there have to be like oi bands. Actually, like a uh, skinhead is a spirit more than anything. So I think by creating a collective, we can create something that is fundamentally inclusive and expansive. And it's moving beyond the idea of one person or one band. And eventually, like, I, I can't, you know, keep on playing like so many random squats in my life. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm, I'm, there's an arc in every musician's career. And I thought about like, well, what is it that I want to do in my life right now? And I have a lot of other interests and a lot of other projects going on outside of the skinhead scene. And I said, you know, if there's one thing that I can do, like, I just want to make a few lasting friendships and pass along a message that um, we all matter and that it's all possible. You know, that's a very beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And I think that it's um, very telling that you speak so candidly about feeling lonely so frequently and the fact that your current project sort of really demands such um, a tight sense of community, especially amongst women. Um, I think that Athena sounds incredible. And I, it sounds like that really could be um, sort of your legacy project, if you know what I mean. Well, I, I hope so. I think that um, the best thing that you can give another person is um, faith in themselves and a little bit of inspiration, right? So I think that uh, right now it's sort of just not about fanning my own fire, but just passing the light on. Now, do you say that because this feels like you will not be playing live shows forever? It's just sort of the language that you're seeming to, I don't know if you're trying to dance around something, I'm not sure. I think that I've sort of come to terms with the fact that um, I, I love the skinhead scene 100%. Um, it's been a huge part of who I am in my life and it will always be that way. But like in every subculture, there's, there's leaders and there's participants, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to, you know, to spend like 30 to 40 hours of your week 
on top of working on organizing shows, putting together um, mixes, uh, organizing studios, time, trying to get funding for all of your projects, rehearsals with a band, with a solo project, writing music. I mean, it all looks cool from like the Instagram angle, for example, but there's a lot of downtime with Excel spreadsheets, which are definitely not sexy, but that's a huge part of administering your own project, right? And uh, I can truly honestly say that like 100% that I've done for the music creative stuff has been out of love. Like it's not like a money-making endeavor at all. But you do get to a certain point in your life where you say like, you know what, I am kind of a bit lonely and I don't really have a personal life because I've devoted a lot of my time to other passions and maybe I just need to take a step back and focus on myself a bit more. And that's really what I've been feeling lately, that I love it and I will always be in love with it. But I um, I want to focus a few, uh, on a on a few more personal relationships. Like my dad's been really ill lately and I think that I would forever regret it if I didn't take the time to do those kinds of things. It sounds like you are really listening to yourself. Yeah. And I can truly honestly say that um, at the end of the day, one of the greatest things that I've learned in life is that it, it, it really truly isn't about how many people like you or like your photos or like popularity. It's, it's not because that serves nothing but ego. Ego is temporary and actually um, it's, it's kind of fake in a way because people will forget about you eventually. Um, and it's also not about money because money is a tool to get what we want. It's not an end in itself. Um, so fame and money aside in life, it's truly just about doing what you love with people you love, period. And by necessity, those things change through life. So then let me ask you this. What advice would you give to a young woman who thinks that she's going to not just step into the OI scene, but wants to make music in that space? What advice would you give to a young woman? I would say... um, that nobody has the right to tell you who you are or who you should be and what you're worth. You decide that. And making music is an act of war and it's an act of courage. And that in itself is something to be commended and something to be proud of. And there will be hard times for sure, but If you love what you do, the positive will always outshine the negative and you just must carry on. That's very good advice. Very, very good advice. So Jenny, this is the uh, question that I use to end every episode and everybody has their own very unique way of answering it, but do you still feel like a punk? Absolutely. Uh, No doubt about it. Well, I tried to explain punk to my mother as my religion, which is also copped from a rancid song. But it's true. It's, it's like a unwavering faith, spirit, connection and feeling that is intangible and indescribable. Like if <clears throat> if you ever really were punk, you always truly will be. And if you never were, 
you'll never understand. So absolutely. And for all the punk rockers out there, I'm sure you know what I mean. All right, that's it. That is another one in the can. Um, I just would love to say a big thank you to Jenny Wu. Um, for real, I know I feel like I say this all the time, but oh my God, I had such a good time with Jenny. She is an incredible person. I don't know. She's a very, very unique mind, and she's had such a unique experience. I've just felt really fortunate to, to spend that time with her. And by the way, not for nothing, but an extra special thank you to her because... This interview actually took place at midnight for her because she lives in in Paris, France, and I am in Canada, so there's quite a bit of a time difference between us, and, uh, you know, she had to work in the morning, <laughs> like everybody else, so I really appreciate it. By the time we finished, it was 1 a.m. for her, so what a wonderful, wonderful person. All of the music that you heard in this episode, well, I shouldn't say all of it, most of the music that you heard in this episode... Uh, was by Jenny with a few exceptions like you heard Vice Squad in there you heard a bit of Rancid in there Um, but I will link everything that you need to follow Jenny um, in the show notes and you can follow her on Instagram at Jenny Wu Oi and really you should she has such a wonderful life and she has I mean just loads and loads of music so if this is your first time hearing about her you're in for it man (laughs) you are in for it and as for her project Athena Um, I will keep you up to date on that as things develop with her. I'm going to keep in touch with her and then therefore keep you in touch with that project as it, as it moves along. So thank you so much to Jenny Wu. Get all of her information in the show notes. Uh, and thank you so much for listening again and again, please, you know that you can DM me on Instagram. I will leave you a voice note. Because who likes to type? I will leave you a voice note. Uh, you can always DM me. You can email me. You can reach out to me in any way. I love to hear from you. Absolutely. So stay in touch, man. Please do. All right. I am your host, Siobhan Woodrow. Trust your gut. All right. I want to thank our sponsor, Pink Cherry. So PinkCherry.com is an online adult store with a huge variety of sex toys and pleasure products and lingerie. And uh, as a nice surprise from them, I was recently sent a package from Pink Cherry to my work. Now, I had no idea what this was because it was a bit of a surprise. And the packaging has no indication of what's on it. I mean, zero clues. In fact, Pink Cherry promises discreet billing, discreet packaging, and a 100% secure checkout. Which is great because if you say, oh, I don't know, receive a package from Pink Cherry to your work... And you open it up and it turns out to be a bunch of anal beads and lube, uh, you will be surprised. <laughs> However, your boss will not know that you got anal beads sent to you at work. So the point that I'll make it here is that you can buy whatever it is you want. This is your prerogative to express your sexuality. And Big Jerry is there to help you, but they're also there to make sure that nobody else knows. Right now, she's a punk listener, so I can use the offer code PUNK40. That's P-U-N-K-40 at checkout, and you can receive 40% off your purchase because Pink Cherry takes a feminist approach to masturbation and sexuality, baby. Scream your own name.